He's not responding at all. It's not working. Wait a minute, Captain. What is it? One of the small creatures is detaching from the starboard nacelle. And another one. They're all letting go. It appears we have lost our sex appeal, Captain. Welcome back to Delta Flyer. I'm Thad Haight. I'm Stuart Hollis. And this week we're joined by our good friend and special guest, Steve. Hey, how's it going? It's going. Yeah, not, too, not too bad. This week we're talking about Season 2, Episode 4, Elogium. It originally aired September 18th, 1995. Yes, it did. And was directed by... Vinrick Kolba. Ah, that guy. Yes, who I sincerely apologize to uh, to Mr. Kolba or anyone related to him if I have been pronouncing his name wrong every week, but I'm sorry. Uh, he is a veteran Star Trek director. We've talked to him about him before. Uh, the story of this episode uh, was developed by Jimmy Diggs and Steve J.K. Um, those two also wrote the story for a later episode, The Omega Directive, and then Jimmy Diggs wrote four other Voyager episodes as well as a DS9 episode starring Robert Picardo. Cool. The teleplay, meaning adapted for television, was by Kenneth Biller and Jerry Taylor, whom we have discussed before. Uh, interestingly enough, this is the episode that got Kenneth Biller uh, an offer to join the writing staff full-time. This was? Yes. Okay. That sounds like Stuart didn't like this episode. Well, let me start by telling you the synopsis for the episode. <laughs> when Voyager encounters space-dwelling life forms, Kess's reproductive system speeds up, jeopardizing her chances of having a child, and Neelix must decide if he will be the father. That's a pretty good synopsis. Hmm. It's actually it's better than Memory Alpha's, which is Voyager encounters a swarm of space-born aliens while Kess and Neelix must decide whether to have a child. Memory Alpha's synopsis is not wrong, right. but it's missing some salient details. Right. Okay, so let's start mm-hmm. with the basics. No, no, basics is another episode. We'll get to that later. That's true. Uh, <laughs> Steve. Yeah? First question, have you ever seen Voyager before? So, believe it or not, despite having listened to this podcast from day one, I have never actually seen an episode of Voyager before. Uh, I've seen all of TNG back in the day and all, pretty much all the movies, but no Voyager. All right, then. So how was this for your, you know, first episode? So overall, I, I I see Voyager's merits as a show. I I compelled to continue watching, but it was a uh, it was an interesting episode. Like it was it's kind of uncomfortable at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I could definitely see where kind of the just the general underpinnings of Voyage shown through, and kind of why people like it, and you know why I've continue to listen to you guys and uh why i'll probably keep watching in the future so yeah i uh actually i'm sorry Stuart. uh what do you remember about this episode from before maybe the beetle eating part mm. the rest of it's fairly like generic random voyager episode stuff yeah like i i remember the overall plot like vaguely uh, the only mm-hmm. thing that stuck out to me when remembering this episode, for whatever reason, is the mashed potatoes with dirt in it. And since when are mashed potatoes with butter a delicacy? I mean, they're pretty delicious. 
Yeah, I mean, until you've been to a Vegas buffet or or down south. Oh, yeah, no, those mashed potatoes at Caesar's Palace, oh my god, like, that's a transcendental experience right there. Okay, cool. (laughs) I mean, I like mashed potatoes. Steve knows, he was there. I was there, I was a witness to, uh... (laughs) I will admit, you're a much bigger potato fan than I am. Like... Those mashed potatoes were almost worth the $60 buffet ticket in and of themselves. I'm really more of a sweet potato fan myself. I've, I've kind of weaned myself off of mashed potatoes, but I did just have some at the Market Cross Pub the other night that were really, really good. They do some good potatoes at the Market Cross Pub. Oh, yes, they do. Uh, I think it was for their shepherd's pie. I love the shepherd's pie. It's oh. it's what I almost always get when I go to Market Cross. It was fantastic. I prefer cottage pie. I don't like peas. Mm. I like I like the lamb over the beef for shepherd's pie. Oh, that's true because I don't eat beef, so I can't have I can't I, I can't have either one of them anymore. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Are there peas in Market Cross's shepherd's pie? I don't remember there being peas in it. Like strictly speaking, shepherd's pie is supposed to have peas, and cottage pie has carrots. Yes, and I think there's also like the beef lamb differential, but but like. Those are she- mm. peas and carrots are are common, but the the real important thing is the sheep versus cow. Hence, shepherd. I don't know why cows yeah. are in a cottage, but whatever. They're probably not in the cottage, silly Billy. I don't know if you saw that gift from a few weeks ago. That dog that herded a whole herd of sheep into someone's house. <laughs> I did not see that gift. It's pretty adorable. So let's talk about stuff that isn't adorable. Hmm. Neelix, mm, there was a lot of that. Neelix in this yeah. episode? Goodness sakes, Neelix. I was deeply uncomfortable. Uh, so I just want to start right off that the Neelix-Kess relationship got, like, a whole lot creepier when we have the subtext that Kess has been prepubescent up into this point. Yeah. Yeah, that was an amplifying detail I really didn't need. Yeah, like, I knew that she was young, uh, but also that, um, I'm blanking on her species. Or Compton. Thank you. Uh, but I also knew that, like, our coppins age differently than we do and only live so long. And I actually, I couldn't remember, like, how old she was anyway. But yeah, the idea, yeah, that, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like, one, like, one of his very first lines, which is, I used to look at women that way. And it's like, oh, jeez. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, honestly, that whole bit in the beginning where he, he kind of, gets really jealous with her and kind of tears her down and then 10 seconds later he's in the room with flowers kind of doing the whole hey baby i'm sorry that'll never happen again i just wanted to apologize that was was really uncomfortable like i I mean having never even seen voyager like right off the bat it like just whoa that that relationship is messed up a little bit yeah neelix is psychologically abusive i yes yes he is to give neelix a tiny smidgen of credit Paris totally would be all up in that if given the chance. At warp speed, no less. <laughs> yes. But, yeah. I I, I don't think Par- Paris was not out of line, and he was obviously flirting, but he wasn't doing anything offensive, especially by Paris standards. Yeah, flirting is like Paris's default position. <laughs> yes. But let, I, I actually want to talk about, like, the first thing I really noticed in the episode was something that, that Kess did that was just like a huge, like, like, ridiculously out of bounds, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. She just like puts the beetle down in the kitchen. Like, who does that? 
Like, haven't you ever heard of like serve safe certification and like not tainting the food and all that? She's like, like she picks the beetle off. She's like, oh look, it's a cool little beetle, isn't it pretty? And she just puts it down and then walks away. There was mm. that, yeah. That that's not cool. I wonder if there's a Federation Inspector General hotline they could call. I thought she carried the beetle out out of the kitchen with her, though. I don't know if she picked it back up. I de- I definitely saw her put it down, okay. like when she and when Neelix was berating her. Mm. That was a spawn beetle, by the way, and oblivion cabbage. Yes, it, doesn't it have such beautiful markings? <laughs> I forget. Are we counting a uh, number of random ad- of adjective nouns? God things? no. We'd be at like four thousand by now, right? We wouldn't be that high, but it's also that it's there'd be too many that would like slip us by. Um, Are we going to count any? Okay, so obviously there's some kind of. I have some sort of and some type of markdown for this episode. That showed up about three times in the space of a minute. I I actually kind of kept mental note of that. We also had forty seven percent. I did notice that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, I I tagged the some sort of magnetic magnetic interference and some type of energetic vapor yep. very close back to back. But I wasn't sure if either one counted because they're not some kind of. Yeah, some kind of. I had the same thought. I don't think they're in the some kind of supercut. So, yeah. but I think Targ Scoop counts <laughs> <laughs> as a one and done. Although Targs have been mentioned, and I'm sure that someone at some point mentioned Scoop. I'm pretty sure those two words have never been like side by side in all of Star Trek. I am not sure that I would count this as a one and done simply because of its building on established lore. Okay, yeah. It, and it's not describing like some sort of like one off weirdo radiation that they somehow right. have a name for but never talk about again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, the, you know, devoted Star Trek fan would already know what a Targ was. So a Targ is a Klingon dog, Steve. Oh, thank you. I, I was actually about to ask. I, that part thoroughly confused me. Like dog warthog thing? So, Steve, you've seen Star Trek 3, right? The one with Christopher Lloyd? It has been many years, but yes, I I did see it when I was a kid. He has one on the bridge with him. On the Klingon ship. Huh. Okay. That's probably one of the few times we ever see one. Yes, Targ. T-A-R-G. Yeah. Yeah, there's... We see one on uh, an early TNG episode when they're in a part of space where, like, they're daydreams become reality and Worf's Targ appears on the bridge, but mostly they're just referenced after that, and I think they eat Heart of Targ at one point as a delicacy. Mm. With a side of mashed potatoes. Sure. So I want to talk about the bug-eating stuff. Yeah. I'm sure that the first time that I saw this episode, I was just as grossed out about the bug-eating stuff as Kessa's face was when it, like, zooms in on her face. She's like, oh my god, I just ate bugs! But, like, now years from you like you know all these years removed and no it didn't look gross at all she was just eating no, no. eating them alive is gross okay I like, guess. you know like at least cook them first or something like just like the like i don't know if i will ever be at a place where i'm gonna bring myself to eat bugs like I mean, who knows what's going to happen in 20 years when the entire climate collapses and we're all scrounging for whatever we can get. But, uh, like, tomorrow, I would not go to some place that served insects. Almost certainly. Hmm. But I'm yeah. not, like, 
totally weirded out by the idea. Yeah, same here. Yeah. I am weirded out by the idea of the little legs moving around while I'm chewing on them. Mm. So it's funny you mentioned that. I actually was reading a survival book today. Don't ask me why. And it was talking about eating grasshoppers. And uh, the one part it mentioned was, um, you know, if you are going to eat them raw, be sure to uh, remove the legs so that they don't do uh, they don't catch in your throat as they wiggle their way down while, you, while you're actually eating it. So that's oh, actually yeah. a legitimate concern. I, I had not concerned. I had not considered the choking hazard aspect of it. I was more concerned about the like. Oh, it's super gross. It wiggled and jiggled and tickled inside you. Uh, yeah, like the extra double plus texture aspect of it. Oh my, yes. No, I'm. I would just try and swallow it whole as fast as possible. Yeah. Right. So. Yes. Are they aeroponics or are they hydroponics? Ooh. Uh, because they were called hydroponics before, but this episode yeah. cast definitely says aeroponics. I thought Neelix said airponics. Someone said airponics. Is she helping you in the airponics bay now? I'm just taking up your mantle as pedant. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Go right ahead. Sure. By all means, pick those nits. Yeah. Uh, I don't actually know what airponics means. I don't either. Like, I barely sort of understand what hydroponics means i think it's just mean like it just basically is like you're like an overabundance of water which is somehow good yeah well it's using water and it's using uh nutrient-rich water instead of soil i believe that i mean i guess that makes sense on a federation ship like clean like Clean and or nutrient-enhanced water is actually probably easier to come by on a Federation ship than dirt. Hydroponics is the growing of plants in a medium other than soil, such as nutrient-rich liquid. Okay. Aeroponics is explicitly using, like, a a fine mist, um, or basically a non-fluid, so... Okay. Aeroponics is actually probably more likely than based on the setup that we saw, not that they probably cared that much about the details on that front. No, but it did look more like uh, aeroponics. Yeah, okay. Well, it's an interesting point to make that aeroponics is a word, but in this case, they are using aeroponics. A-I-R-ponics, not A-E-R-O-ponics. Are you sure it's not A-E-R-ponics? No, it's A-I-R-ponics. I'm looking at the Memory Alpha article right now. Okay, fine. Wait, is that a one and done? No, because they probably mentioned the aeroponics lab many more times. No, it is mentioned multiple times on Voyager, but so is hydroponics to refer to the same place. So we have aeroponics is used more though, so we are. I guess we are to assume that it they meant to say aeroponics when they said hydroponics. Maybe she has two labs. Hmm, that's a possibility too. It so- is a science vessel. Speaking of labs and science vessels and science awesome. Before you get into that, I think Steve wants to say something. Uh, no, actually, I, I. Oh, sorry. I, you know, I false detected a false start. Continue, Thad. I'm sorry for cutting you off. That's all right. I was mostly throwing myself into word babble, word babbling anyway, like I just did. Uh, speaking of labs and science. Let vessels, me just say this one thing though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So speaking of labs and science vessels and science officers, uh, we have the first appearance of a recurring character, Ensign Samantha Wildman. Yes, I also made that note. Uh, she, interestingly, she is named 
for uh, a little girl who uh, whose kidney saved the life of uh, one of the writers, uh, Jimmy Diggs' wife. And that's why that got her name in the script, because uh, her kidney was donated to his wife and saved her life, so he wanted to immortalize that little girl in his script. Oh, that's a pretty cool little factoid. Does Ensign Wildman die later in the series? I don't think so. No, Ensign Wildman mostly just disappears after a while, which is kind of weird considering her daughter never does, but yeah. Uh, Yeah, I was about to say, like, her daughter shows back up, like, from time to time, and also grows up surprisingly fast. Well, she's half... Now that I think about it? Katarian, I think, is... Like, her father is not human, so... It could right. have completely different. But yes, she does She does appear to be older than six years old at the end of the show. Yeah, by the end of the show, she's like 10-ish. Yeah, yeah, a Katarian, I was correct. Her father is a Katarian, so presumably they have a faster growth cycle than humans. Hmm. Also, her father's name is apparently Greskrendrick. Cool. Okay. So let's talk about the stuff that doesn't involve Neelix and Kess. Yeah. So that was some pretty good CGI space worms for 1995. I had to give him props for that, yeah. Yeah, I know. That, it, it holds up fairly well, actually. I mean, like, the biggest, the biggest comment about it is the same comment you would have about any other episode of Voyager, which is that it's TV broadcast on a DVD, and so it's really not the highest, uh, like, fidelity image quality to begin with yeah so like like, everything kind of suffers for that but like in light of everything else that was happening with it yeah the cgi on the little space tadpole things was pretty solid yeah yeah um also coming from a a first-time viewer uh, i was kind of looking in the background i was pretty impressed with just the i mean i I, got cgi they have running on like their system screens in the background like no more just kind of the static displays. I was actually thought they had some pretty decent um, kind of like faux operating systems running on the various computers on the ship. Uh, that was pretty impressed. Like overall, I was really impressed with just the production quality. Um, I don't recall shows from 95 being this good for lack of a better term. Well, they were building on everything they had done with TNG. So by the time they got to Voyager, they had a lot of uh, CRT monitors behind those displays. Okay. So, so some of them were static, which is the lights shining on the static mm-hmm. symbol, but there there was always mm-hmm. usually like at least one little section that was a monitor with an animation going on. And yeah, I would agree. It looks very good. Uh, props to uh, the uh, production design team uh, led by uh, Mike and Denise Akuda, who did pretty much all of those displays. Yeah. I think by 95, we did have some flat glass CRTs commercially available. Possibly, we cer- think we certainly had ones that were only curved one way. Yes, that's definitely true. Which def- which would help d- um, cut down on weird uh, distortion and parallax. Well, not parallax, but just distortion issues. When parallax is filming. another episode. We already talked about that one. Uh, I know. I was there. Uh, yeah, and you don't see that as much on Voyager. So yeah, I think they were using relatively flat displays or at least doing some creative camera work to make it look like they were flat uh on on ds9 they had curved crts all over the place it's interesting they weren't catching the refresh rate though yeah 
Actually, now that you mention it. Well, what what happens with that? I do actually know how this works. On cool television sets, they would have set the they would have set the refresh rate on the monitor to be the same as the camera, so that it would not flicker. Oh, that's right. Oh, okay. that's clever. So all those times that you saw them flicker on any other production, they just hadn't bothered yep. to sync the refresh rates. To change the refresh yep. rate to 24. Yep. Oh, I remember that. God, that's so lazy. Now that I know that it was such an easy fix to do. <laughs> yeah, just really like change is. the refresh rate to 24 or 48 hertz and just call it a day. Like, Because, yep. yep. I mean, it's not perfect. It's actually, what, like 23.992 or something? Repeating, of course. I want to say 23.7 something, actually. And it, it, it's not quite 24. Yeah. Like, come on, guys. Hey, if it's stupid and it works, it's not stupid. I guess. Yeah, But you know what is stupid? Let's fly the big ship towards the cloud of weird space worm things instead of sending, I don't know, like, an RC shuttle, because... Why not launch as- one of those Class 4 probes that they tried to use to get out of the issue? Yeah. I mean, heck, launch, launch a class 12 probe. I don't care, but don't fly the big ship in the... At, at this point, I always accept there's a certain couple points where they just have to make some contrived decision to, to force things along. So I just I just kind of gritted my teeth and went with it on that one. Well, Starfleet is not a military organization they're Mm -hmm. a humanitarian and scientific organization and voyager is a scientific vessel so it stands to reason that they're like i want a science right up in there i know but couldn't they have probed it that would have also been science yeah like one counter that we maybe should add is how many times that janeway specifically says we are the exact line we're a long way from home because they're a long way from home, so maybe not risking the ship every week to explore a new Giga and just yeah. send probes? Yeah. yeah, maybe. So, interestingly, the space worm things, uh, I have I have some more backstory on the writer here. Uh, when... Uh, when Jimmy Diggs came up with this idea, he did it from, he had served in the Navy in Vietnam, and he had seen at night that fish would be attracted to the lights on the ship. And that's where he got the idea of the aliens being attracted to Voyager. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's a fair, yeah. Uh, I mean, counterpoint, everyone who's ever sitting on a port, who's ever sat on a porch at night with a light on yeah. has seen. Yeah. <laughs> That's also and, uh, I'm pretty sure there's no strange sexual overtones when it comes to the uh, flies being attracted to the lights outside. At least I hope not. No, no, no. It's a it's a navigation thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. They apparently would use the moon mm-hmm. as like a super rudimentary point of reference. Like not necessarily like obviously like not knowing. Like they would keep it at a certain angle to them. Yes. And right. Yeah. It, but it wasn't like I mean obviously it wasn't like a conscious thing it was just how their brains had evolved and so now all of a sudden there's all this artificial light and they're like oh the moon now to be fair most of those insects that get attracted to lights at night are looking to breed but the light is incidental to that yes right yeah yeah Yeah, this whole episode was about sex yes in case anyone missed it i'm just gonna spell it out for you you know 20 something minutes in to our talk. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it opens with two people making out in a super aggressive way in the turbo lift. Like, they were super into it, the both of them. They were so into it. Which is, you know... You know who was not into it? Chakotay. Chakotay. Chakotay does not like to watch. Probably for the best. I could cause some command climate issues. (laughs) A little bit. That's true. So I actually did like... Because it was very on brand. When... Yeah. When... Paris asks, what was that? And Chicote says it was some fraternization. And Paris says, sorry, I missed it. That, <laughs> I enjoyed that. Paris does was, like to watch. It was Paris. It was, that was absolutely something that Paris as a character would have said. And it was perfect. Speaking of Paris, this is the first time I ever actually figured out what he looked like. <laughs> For some reason, over this last year, as I've been listening to the podcast, I've looked and read up on, on all kind of the characters you guys have talked about. But for some reason, I never saw a picture or never mentally cataloged what Paris looked like. And it wasn't until he made, I think, that comment when I was watching the episode today that was like, oh, that's the Paris you guys are always talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He looks a little different now because uh, we, we got that picture with him in Treklanta. Uh, a little less clean shaven, wears glasses, and, you know, just generally 20 years older. <laughs> Getting back to the actual episode and stuff right. that's going to be on the on the final. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Neelix is a fleshist. Neelix is a fleshist. Okay, what? What is a fleshist? <laughs> I just made it up. There were oh, okay. at least say, three there... instant. No, no, no. no. Well, some new level of woke. I've not been you know, made aware of. <laughs> well, no. Well, no, because no, because sentient holograms don't exist in our. Oh, like, okay. In our world. But there were at least three instances that I caught. Like, there's the one where, like, yeah. when they're first squaring off in Sick Bay, and he's like, you can't talk to me that way, and clearly the undertone is, I have a, like, beating heart and you don't. And then he basically um, says that to Janeway. And then he basically says exactly that. And then yep. it's the, like, when, when Kes is saying, I need, like, a father figure to rub my feet until my tongue swells up, which... All, Everything about Ocampan, like, <laughs> like, like puberty is super weird, and I realize that's like a weird, like, all right. Like, so here's, yeah, yeah. here's yeah. my thing on that. If they require their parents to rub their feet until their tongue swells up, how did the first generation of Ocampans breed? Like, how did they figure this out? So that was just a ritual. So that's not actually part of the biological process. She said herself that that part's just ritual. Like, it's it's just something they have to do, you know, to mm. feel as if they've completed the process. Okay. Right. right. And, and the women probably, like, found a way to massage their feet on, like, a stone or something in order to coax that process along. It then became the father does it as part of the thing of, like, I'm recognizing that you are a woman and you're not my child anymore. You're still part of my family, but you're not my child anymore. Mm. Like she, I mean, she uses different words, but that was basically the impression that I got from her conversation with the doctor. But yeah, when she was telling Neelix about that and he, him, him calling out that he's like not even like a real person. Yep. And then Neelix is also a sexist. He doesn't know what he would do with a daughter. Oh God. Neelix you know, just has a lot of issues. Props to Tuva for staying woke and just like stomping right on that, and being like, Neelix, bro. Man, yeah. Vulcans so are is, super woke. Is, yeah. is Tuvok always that uh that snarky? Because I, I could get used to that. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. Yes, he's always that snarky. Oh, Tuvok, was, nobody throws Vulcan shade like Tuvok. It was pretty phenomenal. I I, I mean, it was definitely yeah. one of the pillars that kind of is going to keep me coming back to the show. Less so the weird, bigoted, prepubescent love relationships. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, that's like double plus gross now. Um, but yeah, but like, it, I mean, it starts at the very beginning where it's... Uh, you know, like, what's the lunch special? Well, there isn't one. We just have leftovers. Had quite a run on it, as a matter of fact. It seems very popular. If it is all you are serving, that would stand to reason. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, Voyager has the best sarcasm, and a lot of it comes from the Doctor, but Tuvok is the king of sarcasm. That's good to know. I know you guys have, I think, have mentioned it a bit in the past, but... It was it was good to actually see it in person, hear it in person, see and hear, experience it, experience. Yeah, but like the secondary thing um, was when he was saying, "I'm not sure how I feel about him massaging your feet," and I flashed to Pulp Fiction. Oh my! Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't even think of <laughs> that. Yeah. But yeah, which I, I can't include a clip of because it's so much swearing. A foot right. massage is never a foot massage. Yeah, or something to that effect, yeah. I think Quentin Tarantino definitely uh, guest-directed that scene. <laughs> okay, so what else uh, What else jumped out at you on this episode, Steve? Um, I, I mean, I guess we, we hit the... Kind of hit the big things. It did kind of feel like it was... I don't know. Like you said earlier, it felt like a very run-of-the-mill, you know, sci-fi episodes. Um... You know, encounter some alien species, wacky hijinks ensues, uh, some B-plot vaguely related to the A-plot, um, and, and then, you know, wrapped up in a bow at the very end, and never again shall this be spoken of. Yep, that's uh, the Voyager formula. Yeah, yeah. but like I said, um, I don't know, the, the production quality, uh, the Vulcan shade throwing, <laughs> um, honestly, Paris just just because of his acting, like, he's a terrible person, but kind of funny. Uh, that's, that's all kind of stuff that stood out at me and, and kind of the thing that I think are going to keep me keep me watching, um, even if I have to slog through a lot more of these. Um, I don't know. It wasn't, wasn't a bad plot, other than the really creepy, you know, relationship aspect, um, but it also wasn't, wasn't anything to write home about. Yeah, season two Paris is definitely improved over season yeah, one. Yeah, I would say um, there's probably going to be something that happens next week that'll make me eat my words, but I think we've seen the worst of Paris already. Yeah, I guess I need to really go back to season one because I'm really curious to see what awful Paris is like. I mean, you guys—I know, I mean, you guys spoke endlessly of him, but I mean, obviously that's that's filtered through your own level of. Snark. I mean, I would say watch ex post facto, but I would never tell anyone to watch ex post facto. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, honestly, like, if you just watch the pilot, your first introductions to Paris are him on the penal colony and just having, you know, like, you know, has like a chip that's on his shoulder the size of, I don't know, like a small boulder or something with his daddy issues and everything else. And then his first conversation with a character who gets almost immediately killed off uh, is him like flirting badly and her saying do you always approach women at warp speed only when they're in visible range like who is this guy he's a like a scumbag and he comes across that way but he very like 
season two Paris is so much better than season one Paris. And by the time we get to the end of the show and he is like a fully, like a, like a fully integrated member of the crew and he's not a scumbag anymore. He still more or less flirts with everything that has a pulse, but okay, whatever. Like, I don't have any problem with anybody who whose like default position is flirty. Yeah. Other than not knowing how to interpret that sometimes if they're like my preferred demo, but word. Oh god, no. If someone flirts with me, I have no idea what to do. But yes. Yeah, no. Same here. <laughs> but no, I I would agree. I I think Paris I think going forward we're going to start liking Paris more and more, which is good because uh, anyone who's been listening to the podcast knows that we were not Paris fans in season one. No, no, you weren't. Uh, yeah. How do they know the big space worm tadpole thing is a he? It could be the other way around. It could be the she and they could be the he's. Or because well, Dakota not... keeps saying he, he does. He's just assuming, I assume. He assumed its gender. Chakotay is clearly not as woke as Chewbuck. No. Okay, speaking of the Federation, why do the civilians have the ability to erect force fields that other people can't turn off? Especially the doctor. Okay, Inside other people the sick not being able to turn them off, I don't get. Kess may have the ability to do it because she is she is a medic in sickbay. She may have the codes required for a medical emergency. Shouldn't the chief medical officer yes. have codes to override it? The captain of the freaking ship sure as heck should. Well, I think in that case, Janeway was actively deciding to not override it so as to not exacerbate the situation. But the doctor should have been able to override the force yes, field. Should. The doctor should have been able to to just, like, reappear inside his office. But then you get into a whole thing about, you know, at the end of the day, he is still a hologram. And so can you grant the computer, even if it is, for all intents and purposes, a Turing test complete sentient being, can you still grant an autonomous system that level of no human in the middle authority? It has been given the ability to activate and deactivate itself at will. And he can create force fields. We've seen him do it already. So, yeah, I think he should have the ability. And he's designated okay. as chief medical officer. Mm-hmm. So, no, I, I agree. He, he should have the ability. I, I guess I was just kind of playing devil's advocate from, you know, a security system designer perspective. Like, yeah, he is the chief medical officer, but he's also a program. And, you know, by default, you never give program, you know, total authority over something that a human can't override. So, also, since he is a hologram... There was nothing that could have prevent that should have prevented him from just deactivating himself and reactivating himself inside the office. Yeah, I got nothing about that. Or just pressing some buttons on the interface and turning off his um tactility? That's the wrong word. Mm. The thing he does when he slaps Paris. Yeah, he could just walk through the wall. Right. So, do they ever address and uh, this this will probably be we'll probably have to talk about this offline uh, to use my favorite buzzword. Do they ever address exactly how holograms have tactility or, or how they have force tangibility? Fields. Force fields? Yeah. Yep. Okay. yeah it, it, it's a contained force field. Okay. Uh, apparently, Starfleet is a master of the force field and can make it so it doesn't just, like, tingle you, but actively stimulate uh, simulates 
anything from a feather to an apple to a bowling ball to a slap across Paris's yeah. face. Yeah, there's an excellent moment in Phage where the doctor slaps Paris. When Paris says holograms don't have matter, so holographic lungs wouldn't be able to breathe, and the doctor just slaps him, and it's awesome. Nice. Because Paris, uh, this was season one Paris, who was always deserving of a slap. He gets demoted later, doesn't he? Yes, if you yes. don't count his silent demotion from full lieutenant to lieutenant junior grade, oh, no. that's never explained. I've brought, the, I've brought the rant upon us. I'm sorry, Stuart. <laughs> Why? Why did you have to mention the pips? We could have made it an entire episode without <laughs> pips coming up. I I don't, I wasn't thinking, please let me, don't, don't kick me off the show. So, yes, he does get demoted later and then re-promoted, uh, which, you know, much to Harry Kim's chagrin. Uh, that's Here a very- goes Pippi Long's talking. Yeah, there's a very that's a very good episode. I forget which season that's in, actually. Uh, Doesn't matter. But anyway, yes, Paris does get demoted for disobeying a direct order, but he does have... There were extenuating circumstances. That was on the water planet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't... I don't have anything else to talk about in this episode. Uh, it was, it was fine. I have down that Neelix wanting a daughter exactly like Kess just adds to the creepiness factor. Yeah. Yep. Does Neelix ever go away or fade into the background? No. Kess goes away and Neelix stops being as creepy because Kess isn't there. Yeah, I guess. And like on this rewatch, I'm really liking Kess a ton. Yeah. Same here. And so I'm going to be, like, really upset when she leaves. And I'm going to be really annoyed that Neelix is still around. I know, right? That said, I mean, Seven of Nine is pretty awesome, too. So it'll be cool yes. to have her. Yeah. I would say this episode is decent. Uh, it's not an amazing episode. It's not going to be my favorite episode of the season. It's, But it's also not terrible. I didn't regret watching it, Neelix creepiness aside. I think... It has a decent sci-fi premise and is a very run-of-the-mill Voyager episode. You know, with no other basis for comparison besides kind of the by-proxy watching of of the first season I I had via listening to you guys, um, I kind of felt the same way. Again, it was... It demonstrated strong enough underpinnings, like kind of show fundamentals that, like, oh, yeah... I totally get into this. Like, this would be a good show to have on the background or you know, focus on if it's especially good episode. Um, but otherwise, yeah, just kind of kind of standard sci-fi. Um, some of the acting and again, some of the the production effects, uh, production quality kind of carried it through. Um, yeah, be something you know in future rewatches. I'd flip a coin as to whether or not I'd actually watch it, but it wasn't terrible. No. Alright. Yeah. Well then, I guess that's more or less what we have to say this week about Elogium. Yeah. Uh, next week we're going to be talking about Non Sequitur, Season 2, Episode 5. Well, that came out of nowhere. Oh man, I was just going to try and... Uh, I think I was going to go yeah. with the mashed potato thing. <laughs> Alright. Uh, well, thank you for listening this week. Uh, if you enjoyed us, you should also check out our other podcast, Stargate Weekly. You can find a review both on your podcast player of choice, and you can also reach us at our email address, deltaflyerpod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tyrannicus. You can find me on Twitter at Gamicus. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Delta Flyer Pod.
Steve, I'm assuming no one can find you on Twitter. Uh, that's a big negative. I am not on Twitter. Okay. I try to avoid social media. Fair enough. And that's our show. Yeah. <laughs>